Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello again and welcome back once more to Signals to Danger. This is, of course, episode 27 to give you a bit of a peek behind the curtain, you might have noticed that the release schedule has slipped just a little these last few weeks, and well, there's a reason. I'm due to get married in a couple of weeks, and I'm also currently moving between jobs, but I am doing my best to get the episodes out and planning for future releases and additional content. Thanks, as ever, for your support, both through your social media interactions on Twitter and Facebook, and through Patreon and other means, and as far as Patreon goes, I want to thank Ben, James and Colette for your support. And if you're interested in joining them, get yourself over to the support page at signalstodanger.com. Before we start this week's episode properly, I must thank the Railway Work Life and Death Project, a joint initiative between the University of Portsmouth, the National Rail Museum and the Modern Records Centre at the University of Warwick. The project is dedicated to making it easier to find out how railway worker accidents in Britain and Ireland from the late 1880s through to 1939. They provide data about who was involved, what they were doing on the railways, what happened to them and why. They reached out to me today, well not today, they reached out to me a few weeks ago, to see whether or not I could help to contribute and help them commemorate the centenary of an accident that happened in 1921 at a place called Stapleton Road. And, well, you've seen the episode title, that's what this is. Anyway, with all of that introduction out of the way, it seems like it's time to get into this week's episode. So without any further ado, let's get going. As the train passed, one man picked himself up from the ballast to the side of the tracks. What had been a normal day's work, just seconds before, had suddenly turned into disaster. He looked back along the track to where his comrades had been working and he didn't see them there the year is 1921 and the place Stapleton Road carriages are crushed one on top of another investigators at the scene searched through the wreckage for the injured 
This is Signals to Danger, a podcast where we look at major rail disasters which have occurred in the UK, explore what happened, how the investigation was carried out, and how each of these accidents shaped the industry going forwards. I am Dan, I work within the rail industry in my day-to-day life, but today I'll be the one taking you through this podcast. We start every episode by briefly revisiting the events that were taking place at the time, and of course, this episode is no different. So let's have a look way back into 1921. The start of the year brings us the introduction of the tax disc. We recently said goodbye to them, but for over 90 years that little piece of paper was a clue to anyone and everyone as to whether or not you had paid the tax man your due. Of course, nowadays it's all down to typing numbers into a website and looking at a database. On the 3rd of May, the Government of Ireland Act came into force partitioning Ireland and creating Northern Ireland. And on the 9th of July, the Irish War of Independence comes officially to an end when a truce, coming into effect at noon on the 11th, is agreed between British and Irish forces. But this very island-heavy year does not end here. On the 10th of July, we see Bloody Sunday. Clashes between Catholics and Protestants in Belfast result in 16 deaths and the destruction of over 200 homes. Unfortunately, the length of time the troubles stretched over and the scale of events which took place, means that this isn't even the only day that's referred to in the end as Bloody Sunday, with the moniker more commonly associated with the events in Derry in January of 1972. All of these events bring us closer to September, and a normal day on the job, which turned to disaster. The 26th of September, 1921. Quite often when we start these episodes, the location is well known, to the degree that even me, with my very limited geographical knowledge, could point out the general area on a map. Unfortunately, for me at least, Stapleton Road falls outside of that description. Stapleton Road Station is to be found firmly in the southwest corner of the country, on the outskirts of the city of Bristol, nestled within its northeast corner. The station serves the district of Easton in the city and is relatively small scale with only around 200,000 passengers a year nowadays. At the time the episode takes place, this area was under the control of the Great Western Railway, which I realise doesn't actually narrow it down too much. We've talked previously about the main eras of rail in the UK, which cover more or less all of rail as we know it, pre-grouping the Big Four, British Rail and post-privatisation. And as it happens, from a from that perspective, a Great Western Rail, or a GWR, existed in three of them, but all in some different form. Currently, it exists in the post-privatised world as a franchise operated by First Group. In the period of the Big Four, it was one of the Big Four, as the amalgamation bought 
all the smaller rail operators into the country into four joint stock public companies. Southern, London, Midland and Scottish, London and Northeastern Railway, and of course, GWR. You might also notice that only LMS is not currently being used by a train operating company today, and I always thought it was a shame when First to First and Trentitalia on the West Coast Main Line announced that they were going with the name Avanti and not LMS. In any case, the GWR that we have at the time of the Stapleton Road accident 100 years ago is the original, the, I can't forgive myself for this, the OG GWR, if you will. Isambard Kingdom Brunel's God's Own Railway, serving the south-west of the country, bringing people from the capital out to Cornwall and into South Wales via the Seven Tunnel. And it is this neck of the woods that we find ourselves in in this episode, the great heartland of the GWR, just north of Stapleton Road Station, on a normal Monday morning. When we talk about the railway, we quite often mean the machine as a whole. The stations, locomotives, wagons, carriages, railway men and women. But not just the railway itself, the physical line that carries passengers and freight. But this week our story starts with the line itself. The railway lines are known as the permanent way. The permanent ways, the elements of the railway lines, generally... The pairs of rails typically held on sleepers or ties embedded in the ballast, which is what carries the ordinary trains of the railway. It's described as permanent way because in the earlier days of railway construction, contractors often laid a temporary track to transport spoil and materials, you know, just to move the equipment around. And that was the temporary track, which was taken up, and then the permanent way was installed afterwards. And the name never really disappeared, and it's still referred to as permanent way today. In fact, those who spend their days working on the tracks are often known as the P-Way Gangs, and on the morning of the 26th, we start our morning with just such a group. At 7.15, eight men signed on to work, and started to walk to the site where they were supposed to be carrying out those works. They were a slip gang, a group not really tied to any single location, but one that could end up working anywhere in the area. They walked for around 15 minutes, half an hour, to the place where they were due to start their work. The men were George North, Charles Edmonds, Joseph Barrett, Charles Orkill, Stephen Francis, Charles Hobbs, Arthur Hobbs and Thomas Cousins. The eight men were gangers, P-way men tasked with ensuring that the tracks were in a serviceable condition. Slip gangs actually undertook a range of duties, fencing repairs, drainage, tunnel repairs, as well as track repairs, but on this particular date, they'd been tasked with levelling ballast, ensuring it was correctly arranged and balanced and packed to support the rails above it. Their walk started at Ashley Hill Station, a little to the north of Stapleton Road, and ended at a cabin. To get there, they walked under the line to Gloucester, which has since been removed, but they stopped at a hut which was set in the fork between the spur off to Clifton and the South Wales line they'd walked south along. This was where their work was to take place, within this junction. They were to assess the ballast and level it on the cord which joined the line to the Clifton, which had just been relayed and was unsurprisingly known as the Clifton Line. Specifically, they were working on the up line. 
The short line curved to the west away from the main and climbed up to the height which the line to Clifton had been on, which was an embankment above them. The men arrived at the hut at around about half past. They collected their tools and immediately proceeded to get to work, spreading out over a distance of around 130 feet of the up Clifton line to start their task for the day. At this point, we must add another character to our story, Eli Watson. Watson was a driver, charged with the command of a train on the morning in question, and at the time our incident took place, he was bringing that train along the up Clifton line and down towards Stapleton Road Station. You may have put two and two together, and you would be right. This was exactly the same section of line being worked on by the slip gang. The work was being carried out without a block on rail traffic, which we would call a possession. For more involved or substantial work, possessions are taken, meaning that the line is closed to rail traffic. But for something like this, ballast work, it's possible to undertake it between the passage of trains. Of course, precautions should be undertaken. And here, those precautions are in the implementation of a temporary speed limit. 15 miles an hour. At this speed, any train should be noticed by the gangers and they could move clear of the line. And train crew would also have plenty of visibility, allowing them to sound a warning or stop their train if they needed to. Shortly after the men started work, a goods train with a banking engine, an additional at the rear to help push, passed by them on the down South Wales main line. The two locos filling the misty morning air with smoke and noise. Wagons clunked over track joints as steam surged into cylinders. A typical image of the industrial railways which were helping Britain to recover from the Great War. Around this time, Watson started to bring his loco down the curved embankment towards Stapleton Road Station. He watched through the window at the front of his cab, the line ahead of him clear. He estimated that he was travelling at about 15 miles an hour, which was what was required by the restriction. Around two-thirds of the way through the curve... He passed beneath a footbridge under the track and turned his vision towards a signal further down the line. The South Wales goods train moving along the background in front of him. Watson got a vague feeling he might have run over something on the line but wasn't overly concerned, wasn't concerned enough to take any action, bringing his train into Stapleton Road shortly after. The experience at track level was somewhat more terrifying, however. When the men arrived on site, they spread out across the uplifting line. Edmonds, C. Hobbs, Cousins, A. Hobbs, Barrett, Francis, Oakhill and North, one man after another, down the curve. Each man facing down the line towards Stapleton Road, except Charles Hobbs and Cousins. The air was full of sound, the shovels scraping the ballast as they levelled it, the goods train metres away and the city waking around them. They didn't hear any danger. The men were hard at work, diligently focusing on the task at hand, and most facing the other way. They were unable to see any danger. Cousins straightened himself up between shoveling. He caught out of his eye a terrifying sight. The locomotive of the Upclifton train almost upon Edmunds. All he could do with the next few seconds, time he no doubt experienced in Horrific slow motion 
was to throw himself clear of the line. He had no time to warn anybody, no chance to drag any of them clear with him. He threw himself out of harm's way, but was the only one of the eight to do so. Charles Hobbs suffered injuries as a result of an impact with the locomotive, but he was the only man to receive that fate. Arthur Hobbs was only 24, the nephew of the injured elder Hobbs. He had spent all of his time on the job so far working in the dark, dusty and damp confines of the Seven Tunnel, until this day, his first shift out in the open air. His mother was so pleased that he had been moved to safer work. Her celebration would become morning before long. He didn't come home. Charles Oakhill, a man from a true railway family, indeed a tradition which seems to have even continued through to this day, he also lost his life. Tragically, they were joined by Joseph Barrett, a well-known and popular personality in the village of Pilning. The village church would soon be filled with relatives and friends marking his passing. Also to be buried in Pilning, George North, a married man who left a widow, but at least no children. Charles Edmonds had been the furthest north of the men, the first struck by the train. He would find himself alongside his colleagues once more after this day, when he too was laid to rest at Pilning Cemetery. And finally, Stephen Francis, one of eleven children. He was initially only wounded, as Charles Hobbs. But for Stephen, the injury was not one that could be recovered from, and he later lost his life in hospital. Of the gang of eight men who started work minutes earlier, six lives were suddenly brought to an untimely end. Because of the time the accident at Stapleton Road took place, reports aren't as easy to work with. Some of the reports from this time are a lot smaller and less meaty to gather details from for someone like myself who uses them normally fairly exclusively to write these episodes. There there have been a number of episodes I just have not done to date, despite the fact the accident seemed really interesting and the the details in there really transferable i haven't touched them because reading the page or two of report is not enough to put together a 30 40 minute episode quite often at this point in time what they actually got were a few pages in a document of accident returns where a number of accidents from all around the railway were reported back on mass by the ministry of transport Stapleton Road received two and a half pages worth of reporting in such a document, penned by JPS Main. The sad fact here is that in the earlier days of the railway, track workers were being killed not uncommonly. 
it was actually fairly noticeable that Stapleton Road received as large a piece of attention as it did, two and a half pages. Mike from the Railway Work Life and Death Project tells us that while all passenger train accidents were investigated and it was done diligently, it was done properly, only around 3% of staff accidents at the time received the same treatment. Unfortunately, it seems to have been a case of too many accidents with not enough inspectors. The year before Stapleton Road, around about 65 track workers were killed on the job. However, this incident itself is notable because it was six people who died in one single accident. However, they were only a fraction of the staff who lost their lives in 1921, but it was probably this large death toll which earned them the column inches that they received. Nevertheless, answers as to what happened here were clearly needed. And first and foremost, why were the gangers and a train brought together into what inevitably turned out to be a dangerous situation? Secondly, it's worth figuring out why the safety measures that had been put in place around this work to maintain the security of the men failed to do so. And finally, is there any way that matters could be improved going forwards to prevent such a severe incident from occurring once more? It stands to reason that when soft and fragile man is pitted up against cold hard steel, man will always lose. So why is it then that the work was arranged in such a way that those two adversaries were pitted against one another? We mentioned earlier the idea of possessions, blockages of the railway line, which means that work can be taken out without the risk of trains passing or that when work needs to be done that would prevent trains from being able to run, it can be done. Heavy plant over the line, rails themselves physically being replaced, for example. It's by far the safest way to work, and anybody down there on the track can almost forget that they're on a railway line for a bit and just crack on with the job that needs doing. Because for all intents and purposes, under possession, it's not, it's not a railway in the same sense. But there is a lot of work that needs to take place on our railway lines, fairly constantly constantly and if we took a possession every time we needed to do minor work then the railway would never be open clearly a problem for both passengers who want to use it but probably more specifically for the companies who need to transport the passengers and freight around and take their money for the privilege it's a catch-22 the more trains that run the more money that's made but in turn things wear down quicker and more maintenance is required so more possessions are needed and so on and so forth. It was clear from the very, very early days of the railway that there was going to need to be some level of work that would have to be done while lines were open. This still takes place today and until relatively recently was referred to as red zone working, but now we call it open line working. Conversely, work within a possession or a fenced off area near the line used to be called green zone working, but now it has a few other names depending specifically on how that area is protected. The Slip Gang of Stapleton were undertaking levelling of ballast on a recently relayed line. 
This is activity that can be carried out in short stints, moving clear of the line to allow trains to pass, and starting again. The activity was known to be manageable in this way, so there were no regulations on the GWR which precluded this task from being planned in the way that it was. It's the reason that the gangs were allowed to be working where they were. Their task was deemed safe to be done under the running of trains. But this wasn't, however, without some safety features being adapted. I mentioned earlier on that trains were limited in their speed to 15 miles an hour over the site of work. This slower speed of approach would give both gangers and drivers greater opportunity to see each other and on the gangers' part to move clear and on the drivers' part to sound a warning whistle or drop the anchors if they didn't react. Gangers would also have an opportunity to hear trains approaching if they were coming at a slower speed and approaching for a longer period of time. This limitation meant that if the gang didn't react, there was time for an emergency application of the brakes to pull the train up prior to the track workers. And presumably at that point, some angry words might be shared between the two. But they would be safe. In addition to the speed restrictions, the crews who were working tra- trains through the area knew that the slip gang was due to be working there. And also from what sort of time, the details were provided in notices at depots. All of this added up to the men being tasked to work on the open line on the outskirts of Bristol. That's what brought them together at the right place at the wrong time. It was deemed to be safe under the methods of the time. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. With the safety features set up, eight men set to walk to their work site, but we know that only one returned unscathed. Now we need to understand what went wrong. Firstly, the method of work relied on the men digging and levelling the ballast to be able to see and hear approaching trains, but each of them was working on the track, 
Six of them had actually been facing the other way at the time the accident took place. The issue is that none of the men were tasked with solely looking out for approaching trains. If you were to appoint a man solely for this task, then he would become a lookout, responsible for that task alone, and in turn, for the safety of his colleagues. It was raised by those investigating the accident that a railway rule had actually stipulated that when men are working singly or in gangs on or near lines in use for traffic, the foreman, ganger or other man in charge of the gang for the time being must, in all cases where danger is likely to arise, appoint one or more persons as may be necessary expressly to maintain a good lookout and to give warning of any train approaching and he must satisfy himself that the lookout man appointed is properly equipped, is stationed in a suitable position, and is wearing a distinctive badge. The work at Stapleton had, well, not been deemed to warrant the addition on this date, but in fact Stephen Francis, one of those who tragically lost their lives in the accident, was a qualified lookout, so could have undertaken the task that he had been instructed to do. He was not. It was stated to investigators that mention had been made to Edmonds by two members of the gang two weeks before that a lookout man should be provided. Edmonds, however, made no reply, and the work proceeded without one. Edmonds itself apparently taking up this duty. Under such conditions, were he to serve as the lookout, he should have been on the alert and, well, looking out which evidently was not the case, as he too ended up beneath the train. All of this leaves us with eight men working on a live line with the responsibility to be aware of inbound trains and avoid them. And now we need to understand where and why they failed in doing that, avoiding an inbound train. Quite simply, for six of the men, visibility was removed as an option. They were simply looking in the wrong direction. They had their backs to the approaching train. It wasn't negligent, it was most likely the way that they needed to face at that point in time to undertake the task that they were doing. And in any case, a quarter of the men, two of them, were facing north. So why didn't they see the train? We know one did. Cousins caught a glimpse of the approaching train immediately before it started to hit his colleagues. But only a glimpse because he was facing the right way to see it, but he had been looking down and focusing on his work. He had a task to undertake, and he was being diligent and paying attention to it. This is most likely true of his colleague who was also facing that way. To level the ballast, you need to dig into the stone and move it around, and you can't really do that staring off into the middle distance. So in realistic terms, we can't help but be left to question just how much visibility could actually have been relied upon as a method of keeping track of what was coming. There was, however, another sense available to the men. Their hearing. While approaching trains are not nearly as loud as some cinemas would have you believe, they they definitely do make sounds. And to a man who spent 30 years on the job, they are sounds that are recognisable as what they are. But these men were concentrating and they were looking at their work so this actually means that 
For them to serve without a dedicated lookout, you have to accept, and the railway would have had to accept, that there was an unhealthy reliance on their sense of hearing. Even in the investigation, investigators recognise and make reference to this. An unhealthy reliance on the sense of hearing. Hearing is great, and you can recognise the sounds of danger and react to them. But sometimes circumstances prevail, which rob you of that as well. On the morning of the 26th, our gang of eight men were working adjacent to the South Wales main line. And at the time of the accident, as I said earlier, a goods train was proceeding north along the line, directly adjacent. And I tried to paint a, a bit of an auditory picture there. And I'll do it again. Clunking of the wheels over the track joints, the noise of the loco at the head of the train, steam escaping, the banking loco at the rear of the train pushing, puffing, puffing, couplings clinking off each other and loads shifting on the train and other people starting to wake up and houses around them. And after all of this, the noise of their shovels in the ballast. It was a rich soundscape, I imagine. I can, I'm trying to picture it myself as I said that, and that's why I've done that, because I just want to feel how much was probably going on in terms of hearing and what those men had to listen through to hear the sound of the up Clifton train driven by Watson approaching. the gangers never saw or heard Watson and his train is half the battle, but we also need to understand why Watson didn't see them. The driver had been told about the work that was being undertaken, and the need to travel at 15 mile an hour as evidenced by the fact that he was travelling at the reduced speed, so what stopped him from seeing them? First and foremost, we need to understand that Eli Watson had many other responsibilities as a driver, not just looking out for workmen, although this was important. As his train headed down the curved bank towards the worksite, he was looking forward through one of the two windows in the front of his cab, looking along the boiler to the line ahead. He had this visibility of the area at a point 180 yards away, and he couldn't recall having seen anybody on the line. When he had travelled a little further down the line, he turned his attention to the upcoming signal, leaning out from the cab to sight it on his approach. The position would have made it more difficult to sight the gang ahead, but he did need to see the signal. As a final note, though, that goods train that we've talked about already, the presence of it would also have hampered Watson's ability to sight the men, as well as scuppering their chances of hearing him. The movement of the train behind the men would have created this moving, confusing backdrop, which probably would have prevented the men from being silhouetted clearly, or at least as clearly as they would have been against a stationary background.
As in accidents today, recommendations were issued here as well. JPS Main provided some as part of his work on the accident. Firstly, he started by commending a booklet that GWR had created on safety-first principles. He even called it most admirable. Bodie pointed out that no mention whatsoever is made of the steps desirable to protect permanent waymen when they are working upon the line. This was an omission that he referred to as being somewhat remarkable. He recorded that reference to the matter was required. And he also pointed out that there should be more active encouragement to those in charge of gangs to utilise lookouts going forwards. Instead of just allowing them to, to interpret, it was, let's actively encourage these gangers to, to utilise lookouts and try and improve safety that way. And finally, once it was recognised that rules probably should have led to a lookout being posted, Main wrote the following. Read into this what you will. Gangers and permanent way men do not always thoroughly understand many of the rules. It therefore appears to be highly desirable that in addition to providing the men with rule books, some system of instruction and periodical examination should be instituted to ensure that they have a thorough knowledge of the precautions it is desired they should take. The mere reading of rules by a ganger on a wet afternoon in a platelayer's hut and the signing of a statement to the effect that rules have been read over are not sufficient. And it seems true. It does seem at this stage that some of the roles, train crew for example, or signallers, had some more stringent and regimented enforcement of rules, or enforcement of knowledge of rules particularly. We call this knowledge and the management of it competency now. Are you competent to do a job? These are the criteria you need to hit to maintain your competence. And the recommendation here hints towards a need for all staff who work in safety critical roles, including those who work on the track, to have some element of a managed competency. And that is a lot closer to what we have today. The GWR did apply some recommendations here and they improved to a reasonable degree following the accident. A dedicated safety booklet was created and issued for permanent wear staff and it was issued first in July 1922 and then reissued in 27. And in 1928, a whole new booklet was produced. Finally, those who worked on the tracks would receive full detailed instructions on how to remain safe while they were working there. Which kind of feels like it's something that should have been in before this point. Nowadays, the controls over what can and can't be done on a live line is probably far more complexly monitored, policed, controlled and defined. There is little to no ambiguity and the rulebook clearly outlines, well, the rules. Lookouts are a crucial link pin in this process nowadays, but there are additional protections in place. You'll find now quite often that there are work sites near to tracks where one track may be being worked on, but one adjacent isn't. If it's a longer piece of work, they may actually have temporary fences put up between them. 
so that only the line that's being worked on is blocked off. And it stops people from accidentally wandering onto the wrong lines. But perhaps one of the best things to be added into here has been, well, it, as happens a lot in the railway, the addition of technology. One pretty clever system would be things like the automated track warning system. These are set up by track workers on attendance to a site when they're doing a set of work and when approaching trains pass over a set point further down the line. The equipment that workers carry sounds a siren, flashes a light and warns the team to get clear long before the train is visible. And not only is this safer than even a lookout who can generally only see as far as the Mark 1 eyeball cam, it allows you to know to work more safely in curved areas where you physically don't have the line of sight or fast areas of track where you need to know with some some distance that a train is bearing down on you at 125 mile an hour. And not only is it safer, systems like this expand the range of work that can be taken out in open line working. I really wanted to say red zone working there. There are some locations where these automated warning systems are permanently installed and you know structures that need a lot of general maintenance and it's easier just to, to build it in and when you need to use it, you activate it. There is a happy middle ground between the two systems which is called a lookout-operated warning system. So instead of an automated sensor somewhere down the line, you place another lookout and he sits there and he has a big button. He presses and says... Hey up guys, there's a train coming. And then this lovely loud siren and a flashing light will tell the P-Way gang. And these systems are designed to cut through the noise of a work site. It's the same sort of siren you might get on a level crossing. It's it's harsh, it's electronic, it's it's not gonna blend into the noise of shovels on ballast. They're designed to pull staff away from their tasks and snap them back to the key message. Get to safety. With rules as strict as they are now, and all the technology that's involved, surely track work is as safe as houses nowadays. No riskier than an office job. Unfortunately, not quite. It's not the 60-odd deaths that, say, 1920 saw, but... Unfortunately, we're not quite in the right place yet. The 9th of February this year saw a 30-year-old track worker lose his life near Surbiton. Last year, another was killed at Roden. When you look back to 2019, two more were killed at Margham in South Wales. My personal opinion on this is the only acceptable number is zero. And we're just not there yet. Unfortunately, there are also plenty of near misses on top of these fatalities, and it really is an area that the industry is still working very hard at improving. But, like I said, we're not quite there yet. To close this episode off, I must once more give really, really big thanks to the Railway Work Life and Death Project. I I don't need to plug them. They've got about 10 times as many followers on Twitter as I have. They are certainly bigger and 
a lot cleverer, in all honesty. But they do some really, really good work. And if you haven't stumbled upon them yet, if you haven't been to see what they do, then I really would recommend it. To quote from their website, we're making it easier to find out about railway worker accidents in Britain and Ireland from the late 1880s to 1939. We're providing data about who was involved, what they were doing on the railways, what happened to them and why. Although today most people don't realise it, working on the railways 100 years ago was incredibly dangerous, with hundreds killed and tens of thousands injured every year. And they do really care about the people that were involved in this. Um, I've, I've really got to thank Mike, personally Mike, for, for some really wonderful information that he sent over to me so I could do this episode and, and help to commemorate the centenary of the accident at Stapleton Road. But there's some real human information about these guys in there and they care about highlighting that and making sure it gets out there. So I would recommend genuinely go and have a look. Get yourself over to railwayaccidents.port.ac.uk or if you are a social butterfly like me, you can follow them on Twitter at at RWLD project. Nobody should go to work and not come home. But when you take that horrible occurrence and multiply the effect by six... Six members of the same gang of lads. Six components of the same communities. That outcome is terrible. We know that there's still work to do now, and any death is one death too many, but I really do hope that a hundred years later, we've done enough to prevent another tragedy on this scale. by now thank you so much for tuning in to episode 27 of signals to danger once again please like share and review come interact with us on social media twitter or facebook just search for signals to danger or daniel fox rail if you do want to support the podcast get yourself over to signals to danger.com and either look at the support or shop pages you could buy me something off his amazon wishlist you could sign up to patreon or you could give a donation on paypal if any of those things is what you want to do if none of those things is what you want to do just have a look at the website and enjoy yourself until the next episode please travel safe
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.